Hello, hypothetical yo, yo. listener. My name is, J- is John of John vs. Patrick. And on this podcast, I'm actually oh, yes, interviewing podcaster and horror icon. Levels, Miguel levels, Rodriguez. levels, Say levels, levels, levels. Uh, hello. <laughs> icon, huh? Nope. Yeah, definitely. Okay. You definitely are. And specifically in the local scene, you're huge. I mean, honestly, I don't think there really would be any kind of San Diego horror scene if it wasn't for you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank yeah. you. You should take it. Because you're an awesome dude. Thanks. Um, this is pretty good beer, by the way. Right. I just want to. I just want to mention the beer that that John has graciously uh, provided me. It's called He Brew, the Chosen Beer. And specifically, this is the Messiah Bold. It, it's quite bold. It's quite <laughs> bold. We're in San Diego. San Diego has this odd infatuation with beer, so I figured, you know, I'd throw that in. You know, we are in San Diego, but this was actually brewed in San Francisco. They still nope. like it here. I take it back. It was brewed in New York. Should we do that? The this whole, stuff's like, made in New York City, right? <laughs> Get that's, a roll. That's one of those advertising phrases from my youth that has been stitched onto my. Oh yeah, consciousness. it'll never die. Yeah. Oh no. That and tastes great. Less filling. <laughs> All right. Awesome sauce. Well, I have a bunch of handy dandy compare comp- uh, pre-composed questions. But, you know, Miguel and I are friends, so honestly, I might not even need them. Let me start here. Is there anything you want to talk about? Or anything that you feel like people don't ask you about enough? That people don't ask me about enough? Mm-hmm. Well, I tend to get most of the questions uh, directed at in my direction are about Godzilla. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But uh, the, the people don't ask me. That's an interesting question. How about what was my childhood trauma? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that's really interesting because I wanted to ask kind of a follow-up or a related question. Uh, what do you think people's biggest misconceptions about horror fans are? About horror fans? Oh, that's easy. The um, the misconception or the, the stereotype of the horror fan, of course, is uh, the almost it's the same stereotype that people had uh, of metalheads in the 80s you know <laughs> lunkhead kind of oafish maybe maybe neanderthal-esque devil worshipers evil base is a very interesting word to use that, that i've is. heard used about it also More- that's a surprisingly smart word to use in such a dumb opinion <laughs> yes and by far the most I, w- I would say inclusive and generous and 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 kind people i have met are the ones who are really obsessed with horror films and and horror and literature art and it's funny that you're asking me this i just finished an episode of my podcast uh where i interview three people who are working on a true crime shock movie called American Girls. And we I talked about this with a horror actor named Bill Oberst Jr. Who, Great interview. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, he's an excellent actor, very smart guy. And and we all kind of talked about having that same observation that horror fans are the most loyal and most kind and most giving and people in the industry as far if you're a filmmaker, an actor, crew member, people who work on a horror set tend to be the most lenient, the nicest, the easiest to work with. Um, and, and it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And you know what? Let's circle back and okay. kind of discuss that. But I realized I totally got ahead of myself. <laughs> um, tell me about Monster Island Resort. I know about it, but again, the hypothetical listener, singular, who's listening to this might not. Who, who would not know what that, no, I'm just <laughs> Lots of people don't know what that is. So, yeah. uh, I'll take this opportunity. My, my podcast is called Monster Island Resort. 
So you do the, uh, you mentioned the film nights. So you do the podcast. And you yeah. also have put together a bunch of film festivals and film nights here in San Diego. Yeah, it's all under uh, the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival brand. Um, ah, brand. The brand. Yes. Sounds so professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's hopefully getting there. Where, And the only reason I want to say it's professional is so I can get sponsorships, so I can keep going. But, you know, and, and I should point out, you're very professional, but you're also very kind. And that's the only reason I joke about it, because I'm used to, I don't know, professionals spitting on me. Yes, I don't, I don't yeah, know. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we all have that. I think a lot of us have that experience where we... It is more a fear than a reality. Yeah, like... yeah. oh yeah, of course. <laughs> it definitely is. Yeah, a lot of the professionals, I mean, I live with a couple of very... Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is fun to say I never trust anyone in a tie, too. So. <laughs> uh, but anyway, exactly. Horrible Imaginings is my film festival. And so the main show, of course, is, is in November, which is two two full days. Of exhaustion for me, but hopefully fun for other people. <laughs> and Which is a lot of fun. I especially enjoyed Late Bloomer when I went. Oh, thank uh, you. Which I will be sure to post on the new website. I posted on my old one. I the, love that short film. Yeah, the uh, director of that, Craig McNeil, he has been kind enough to offer that one free for free on YouTube. It's a really, really brilliant, hilarious <laughs> short. Especially if you're familiar with Lovecraft, it's very tongue-in-cheek with Lovecraft and basically takes Lovecraft's um, kind of old gods world and places them in a sexual education classroom in middle school. You know, it is very tongue-in-cheek, but I feel like in Lovecraft, you know, even though there's so much power in his mythos, so much of it is... You have to laugh. Yeah, is yeah. powered by... Uh, Honestly, very extreme sexual and racial rep- uh, oppression. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, repression. Absolutely. Um, so it's funny to see that taken tongue-in-cheek because it works so well just because it seems to, like, fit. Oh, it does. All right, well, I wanted to ask you this. Okay. Uh, so you have these film festivals and these film nights, mm-hmm. and in your podcast, you're primarily talking about film. What is it primarily. about film as a medium that really excites you well okay <laughs> that's a really good question actually i got po- monster island resort i don't think questions. i got to say yeah because i, I go off on tangents <laughs> monster island resort now is a podcast it was the myspace group yes actually became, great point morphed into the podcast you're such a great talker i completely forgot that we went on that tangent yeah and and that's 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 makes this fun yeah uh, it became it became a podcast in uh, the summer of 2010. So started MySpace Group, 2010. Yeah, a after a long hiatus, yes. And and the podcast came before I started the film festival. But regarding film, personally, I'm a cinephile. So I have a very, very deep affection for horror as a genre. Uh, I just love film um, of any genre. And so it's just very natural when, when wanting to discuss anything genre. Film is something I just sort of I sort of gravitate toward. I love classic film. I love drama. I love I love a lot of films. So it's hard not to gravitate toward film. However, I also love literature, and so I'll talk about horror and literature as well. Although a lot of that has uh, either been relegated toward H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> or um, part of Monster Island Resort is an offshoot, a spinoff actually called Monster Island Resort Story Time. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. I read um, public domain gothic horror literature uh, mm-hmm. online, and that's actually been a very popular one. Oh yeah, so. no, and and you have a great reading voice on that. You, you also read your own stories. I I have planned on. Oh, you know what? I I did. I, I've done it once. Yes, the Krampus story. <laughs> I, I planned on doing that when I started story time. I write my episodes, and that takes up a lot of my writing time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I did write a a fiction story for for christmas 
about Krampus, and uh, and I read that one for the New Year's episode. Mm-hmm. It was a little late for Christmas. We had talked about film and what excites you about film. I think the other side of what you do is the building of community. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite and least favorite aspects or things that have come out of building both a very hyper-local community mm-hmm. for the film festivals and an international community via the podcast? Wow. Well, I get least favorite, I'll start with that. because okay. Because honestly, it's negligible. So you can get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, as far as least favorite, a lot of times, especially when you talk about the internet, people take the anonymity of the internet and use that as a, as an opportunity to spout venom for no reason. And as far as that goes, that has been something that's kind of irritating to deal with that, that anyone who does what I do is familiar with. But that's about it, you know? I, with the podcast, and with everything that goes with it online, it's all been very positive for the most part. That's great. Yeah. It's just tough sometimes because even though it's overwhelmingly positive, at least for myself, one word of criticism is worth, I don't know, a hundred words of praise. Well, yeah, of course. Although you learn to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, I have learned to take any criticism and 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 use it to make myself better. Yeah, and, and appreciate that. Did it? Do you feel that genre entertainment, horror, science fiction, fantasy, is in a quote unquote ghetto and still is treated different than serious art? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Okay. So the question there in that you know trio of genre, how do you feel that horror is treated differently than science fiction and fantasy? Uh, horror is by far the most ghetto ghettoized. I mean, it's. Science fiction can be dismissed as silly, as can fantasy, whereas horror is often scapegoated as pernicious. Mm, yeah. So it's actually a lot worse in that, in that, in that way. Mainstream view of it, uh, which is interesting because it, it, it is a, a genre that makes money. Yeah. So. What that tells me is there are a lot of people who aren't very honest with themselves out there. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry that he had that opinion. It kind of reminds me of Ebert saying a couple years back that video games could never be art. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, That caused quite the stir. Big internet kerfluffle. So, and then my last question in that series about, you know, the the ghetto for genre. Right. Since we both agree that genre entertainment is in a ghetto, how could it get out conceivably? And and more, more importantly, perhaps... Should it Should even it. try? Right. I don't. I don't think that it will ever get out. I think. I think there is something about human nature that drives people to scapegoat certain things, mm-hmm. uh, especially mediums of art. If people want to seem more intelligent, then they'll say, "Yes, I'll go to see the artists, but I'll never see." I don't know, whatever, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that there's some, you know, that's one element of it. I think, I think there, it's always been kind of a, a, a secret, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of its charm. I think part of the charm of, of genre like science fiction or horror or fantasy or even, I'm going to bring this out, even like the romance novel. Yeah. Is that, well, and the the subgenre that really brings this to the forefront, I would say, is mm-hmm. paranormal romance. Yes, paranormal romance is 
eating publishing alive. Yes, it is. And so, you know, there are issues because a lot of it is going to be crappy. But yeah. some of it is just straight up jealousy that these books make so much money. I think that's true. I think that's true. Make a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. They're very, they're very, very popular. Oftentimes the, uh, the authors on their first book got great deals and, mm-hmm. and there probably is some professional jealousy there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to guess because I don't know for sure. But, uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty likely. I, I want to mention a website called The Cultural Gutter. And the reason I want to mention them is their whole thesis is discussing what they call disreputable art. Which I think is is an even better term than ghettoized art. That is a good term. Um, and and so they have film, a person who writes about film. They have a person who writes about comic books, and they have a person who writes about romance novels. And and that's really interesting. And I think a lot of a lot of people may have said, "Why are they talking about romance novels or whatever?" Because they want to read about Batman Year One or something, mm-hmm. or and some like, cheesy kung fu flick. Yeah, or the gamma. Well, it's it's fascinating um, to to see the way you can play with the kaiju concepts because the most popular way is rubber monsters beating the crap out of each other. In that's models. what that's how most people see it. Exactly, that's how most people see but it. But there's yeah. so many more ways to do it. Yeah, well, that's actually you know that that's not how what the original intention was. Yeah. Um, so well, I remember you you talking about the original Godzilla f- film at your uh, October film festival. Right. And yeah, and the first episode of my oh not I'm sorry, the second episode of my podcast goes into uh goes into pretty deep detail about that as well. Um you know, it it was well, the underlying foundational idea was to create a giant monster movie. There there are a couple of things that are interesting about that. Uh, one, it's the first sci-fi movie from Japan. So it's widely regarded as such, which when you look at Japanese pop culture now, that's a very significant thing. Oh, yeah. it's, it's very sci-fi oriented. Um, and, and they almost kind of rule the world when it comes to really interesting sci-fi, really interesting fantasy. Uh, the Japanese manga and some of their films are just extraordinary. Um, and and it was one of the first. Before that, most Japanese films were either war movies, um, largely uh, period samurai pieces, mm-hmm. um, and, or art films, o- almost ex- almost exclusively. Uh, some very, al- although sometimes it would descend into very exploitative like um, sex movies as well. But but for the most part, as far as taking on a special effects film. Godzilla was it. Godzilla was the the door that unleashed a flood in Japan. Just a flood in Japan. The, the Showa Godzilla series is sixteen films long. That's mm-hmm. just Godzilla. So it, it's it's really amazing. It it went way beyond what they had expected. The producer at the time was Tomoyuki Tanaka. The director was Honda Ishiro. And the uh, special effects uh, person was uh, Subaraya Eiji. And, um, and of course, I just have to mention the music because uh, Ifukube Akira did the music of those. And, and they're, they're very memorable scores. But uh, their idea was, yes, they wanted 
a giant monster movie. They were inspired by King Kong. They were inspired by Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And, and they wanted a giant monster movie for Japan. They thought it would do really well. But the fact of the matter is, when Godzilla came out, it was 1954. It was not even a decade after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was something very recent in the memory of everybody involved. Actual living memory of everybody involved. And it was very scary. It was very, it was a very scary thing. The war was over at that time. And politically, Japan and, and America were on good terms. However, America was still testing bombs. Mm-hmm in the in the Pacific and so uh one of those was a hydrogen bomb test off the Bikini Atoll and that ended up contaminating a a small fishing vessel, a Japanese fishing vessel called the Lucky Dragon number no. five and gave the crew radiation poisoning and, and also irradiated the catch of the day. And that was big news and, and you could imagine being a Japanese citizen after, you know, not even a decade after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and hearing about the Lucky Dragon number five and thinking it's just getting worse. The world's going to end. You know, something has to be done like this. And, uh, and that's what Godzilla was. Godzilla was, was a warning. Godzilla was taking the devastation of the bomb and personalizing it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what that first film was. And, you know, yes, it, it, because of the limitations at the time, because they were new to it, although I will say Subaraya's special effects, he was very creative, very innovative. It was a man in a suit. And the, the, the suit actor what did, you know, did an extraordinary job, especially in that first film. But that ended up becoming par for the course, not just because it was quicker to do that in stop motion. I'm not going to say necessarily easier, because it's not an easy thing to do to make one of those films. Well, the suit weighed 225 pounds. Correct. Yes, the suit weighed 225 pounds. Uh, It was not easy on whoever was inside it. Uh, But but the fact of the matter is, it wasn't meant to fool the audience into thinking this is what this would really look Mm -hmm. like in a way. It was more of an artistic rendering of it, more of a representation of it. You know, that's that's something I like to talk about with effects is, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, we can do CGI right. nowadays. But to be honest, most CGI looks terrible I 10 think, years after the fact. I think Godzilla looks as real now, more real than anything. Oh, most definitely. And, uh-huh. and as you mentioned, realism perhaps isn't even a good goal. Right. I think long-term watchability is a yeah, better goal. That's definitely and, true. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the films of, say, Ray Harry Hawson, for instance. Yeah. And all of his monsters look really cool still, yes, in definitely. my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I don't, I don't believe this is just nostalgia and, like, oh, I wish it used to how no, it they look be. freaking awesome. They look really cool. Yeah. Whereas, if you look at, say, like, the newer um, Revenge of the Titans is the film, uh, you know, that, that, and I didn't see it, but my guess is... I did. I saw and, the remake of Clash of the Titans. Yes. Clash of the Titans, excuse me. Um, okay. I'm sure the Kraken is going to look... It probably looked bad when it was released. And it will probably look only worse and less watchable ten years from now. It's just... Yeah, it, I, it was awful. It mm-hmm. was awful. There's definitely something to be said with practical effects and or doing CGI when you know how to do it. Like Golem from Lord of the Rings. Yes. I think Golem from Lord of the Rings is a very watchable CGI character mm-hmm. who will be watching ten years from now. Oh, no yeah, problem. definitely. I mean, I'm not saying CGI is impossible to do well, but it's... Maybe it's just because it's a new form. People don't know how to do it well. 
Well, you know, I'll give an exa- I'll give it. I'll give a a converse example uh, that um, I thought was that really blew me away and was very unexpected. I went in with very low expectations and came out with not only CGI that I didn't mind, but a film that was much better than I was expecting. And that was Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Hmm. Have you seen that one? No, but I've heard. I oh, heard it was man, great. Man, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. And so, well, who's the who's the basically? He's not a suit actor anymore. Um, although he does wear a suit when he's acting. The guy who played Caesar in that, right? Also did uh, Golem. Yeah, he also <laughs> he also did Golem. And I, I'm actually having a brain fart on his name right now, which is crazy because I talk about him all the time. He's really extraordinary as a motion capture actor. Is, is actually that's yes, um, that's the phrase I was looking for. Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. It's okay, probably because I'm thinking too hard about it. And I've had Hebrew after all, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, you and you want another, by the way? No, no, I'm good. But yeah, we're gonna get a slew of comments from nerds saying, "Why, why didn't you remember his name?" But uh, <laughs> you, I think you're completely overestimating how many people are gonna be listening to this. <laughs> if I get a comment that says first, I'll be elated. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So yeah, it, it's because of him, really. He does. He just does a great job with that. His expressions come through, and his humanity comes through a character that isn't even there. So it's yeah. pretty, pretty amazing. Oh, uh, did you know it? I know something about zombies that you might not. What's Perhaps that? you already know. So I was reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay. If you don't know Epic, I'm sure you know. Yes. Epic of Lister might know. Epic of Gilgamesh is pretty much the oldest work of literature we know. Uh, it's about four thousand years old, ancient Mesopotamia. You know, the god kings running around being a badass. That's Gilgamesh. Oral for over a thousand before we got any written version. Exactly. But what I find fascinating about Gilgamesh, or one of the things I find fascinating about it, is at one point Gilgamesh has pissed off the goddess Ishtar. And Ishtar goes to the other gods and says, I need you to give me uh, this monster called the Bull of Heaven, because she's going to use this to punish Gilgamesh. And the gods don't want to give her this bull, because it's going to end badly. So what she says is, if you do not give me this bull, I will go down to the underworld, and I will tear off the gates of the underworld. And this is very close, but it is a paraphrase. But this is very, very close to what it actually says. It says, after I tear off the gates of the underworld, the dead will come out, and the dead will outnumber the living, and the dead will consume the living. So this is a as 4,000-year-old piece of literature that had a, at least a 1,000-year oral tradition before then, where the zombie apocalypse is threatened. <laughs> yeah. So as near as I can, for me, that means, as near as I can figure it, since day one, we were talking about zombies. Well, here's something to remember, uh, and it's very, very interesting, and I've actually thought about the so-called zombies in the Gilgamesh tale before. What's interesting is uh, the zombies in the Gilgamesh tale are more closely related to the Romero modern zombies. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So, um, Well, they don't actually, it should be noted, they don't actually make an appearance. No, no, no. They're a threat. What they're, they're a threat, of course. So, um, But you're absolutely right. It's the classic, the dead have risen and they're going to eat the living. Yes, exactly. And and I doubt that Romero or, or anybody, I, you know what, I don't want to make any assumptions, of course, but I would say that probably unlikely that Romero or anybody else was thinking about Gilgamesh when they thought about that version of the zombie. Romero invented the Romero zombie. What we think of zombies now in regards to the dead rising from the grave and eating the flesh of the living is pretty much an invention of his. It was Night yeah. of the Living Dead. Well, because before that you have the, the voodoo zombie, which Bingo, is a one-by-one thing, and they're labor-intensive basically to create. They're it's slaves. Not in mass. They're essentially yeah, exactly. brain slaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that that's one of... that's 
the more classic zombie. Although I would like to point out that, you know, in the earlier tales, I don't think there was so much differentiate between zombie and vampire. Right. You know, there was the idea of the revenant um, well, or the ghoul. They're both, the word undead is is used for both of them. Exactly. With yeah. reason. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. All of that is pretty interesting. And what it really is, is just a, a commingling of, of scare. And the fear really comes down to death. And death is one of the oldest fears. And, and so it's not surprising that, that in a story as old as, as that Gilgamesh uh, epic, legions of the dead were a threat. It, it's because People at that time experienced death. They experienced the death of their loved ones. Loved ones. They don't know where these what happens after, and and that was a real nightmare. That was a real fear. Well, I think it's why zombies still hold sway over us now. Well, and it's the transformation. It's yes, the the loss of a minute before they were giving their final words. Maybe they were breathing, and then something happens, and there's something else, and and there's something threatening. Yeah. Well, and and in you know. In actual reality, there, there's something that's still. Yes. But there's something that has been moving. Mm-hmm. Well, and and to be fair, corpses do move because there's like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. My dad was used to be a mortician, and he told me stories. Yeah, about um, like spasms. They don't stuff. bite people. No. Um, but there are spasms. So, yeah. So, yeah, corpses do move, just in case you need, you need any nightmare fuel. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Oh, the other thing, too, I, I would say about zombies and, and what to do. And I think one of the reasons that we love the zombie story so much is because there's lots of things we're afraid of. The apocalypse mm-hmm. is kind of a catch-all for societal breakdown. Yeah. And reemergence of personal violence and the always-on, always-ready violence. It's really hard to think about having to kill people that used to be your neighbors. Yeah. If they're still people. that That's a horrific, terrible thing. If you can say, well, they're no longer truly human, you can talk about a lot of these really uncomfortable things without making everyone just cry for a week straight. Yep. And I honestly think that's why like the CDC has a, you know, your zombie preparedness right. case. Because you really don't want to think about things really going wrong. Right. So let's talk about zombies. Far worse, yeah. Exactly. It's e- it's easier to talk about killing zombie Flanders than actual Flanders. <laughs> yeah. Homer would probably be okay with yeah, that. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but you, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It, it's a way of talking about these. <laughs> he was zombie? getting back to the thing we said about twilight earlier so my theory of you know whatever makes a monster Mm -hmm. is it has to have some kind of alienness and it has to have some kind of immediate threat so if it's alien but it's not immediate threat it's just an alien we don't get it if it's immediate threat and not alien then it's a villain but it's not a monster per se i i feel like with twilight and paranormal romance in general i think there's two human drives and one is to mate with something that's really similar to you Mm -hmm. and the other one is to mate with something that's really different from you and so what i think that paranormal romance kind of draws its power from is that drive to mate with something that's different from you but you have to strip the threat away from the monster first and you just leave the alienness of it it's an interesting internal conflict there being attracted to both or being attracted to one when you think you should be attracted to the other. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. That there seems to be a big push for humanizing the monster lately. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and turning them into villains. I was having a conversation with my friend and I was actually talking about how, you know, in the Dark Knight, the one with the Joker. Yeah. The Joker isn't for me a villain, he's a monster. Mm-hmm. Because there's something inherently alien about him that goes beyond, you know, a villain like Harvey, uh, mm-hmm. Two-Face. Where there's still something relatable in him. And tragic. 
yeah, and tragic. And that and that makes a villain versus a monster, like a kaiju, for instance, a good example of this. It can almost be a force of nature. Right. You can't do anything about it. There's not redemption. You're never going to redeem Godzilla. <laughs> Although, I mean, maybe you'll make him a friend of children. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Depends on the film. Yeah. But, uh, you know, monster will always be a monster. Uh, the Joker was really interesting in that movie. And he even described himself as such. He said, I'm an agent of chaos. <laughs> and uh, that was really interesting. Uh, yeah. He had no morality. It was all just chaos. Yeah. He was interested in making people piss their morality away. You know, the brilliant thing they did do with him was not giving him a backstory. That really yeah. kind of really did it. They left oh, him yeah. a mystery. And mm-hmm. that's what brings out the kind of monster in him. There and was, they made him funny. They made him fun because he had to be. He's the Joker. I think Jack Nicholson Joker was funny, though. Try watching it again. He's a little goofy. I'll try yeah. watching it again. This town needs an enema. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I might have to it for that line you alone. You should rewatch it. <laughs> there are two very interesting lines that on the surface seem kind of inconsequential, but I think are really telling regarding that Joker in, uh, in the Christopher Nolan. Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the, the one that appears later in the movie first. It was in the interrogation scene with Batman. Probably one of the best scenes of the movie. Oh, yeah. When Batman is pounding him, and he's like, there is nothing you can do to me. And that was pretty interesting. And and the other line is actually one of my favorites that he delivers is uh, when he goes in to, to approach all the gangsters. And he, of course, he does the disappearing pencil trick and all that. And someone goes, he's, you're crazy. And he looks at him, and, and suddenly he's extremely serious. And he and he's like, no. No, I'm not. And it was <laughs> perfect. It was one of the best delivered lines in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, when people talk about... I've heard people say that Heath Ledger, you know, he only got a, an award posthumously because he died. Oh, and, no. You know, people... No, he really deserved that because that was an amazing performance. It really was, and uh, and and that lo- that two seconds alone when he said that, he deserved that award for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know that's the thing about Batman is the villains and monsters have always been more interesting than Batman. Story's only as good as your villain. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. And Batman has great villains. Yeah, Spider Man was about Spidey. Yeah, Batman's about the villains. Oh, yeah. Because Bat- Batman's a darker story. Batman's about the darkness. All right. Well, I think it's about time for us to wrap it up. Okay. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or pitch or say? <laughs> well, um, mostly uh, talk about the film out night that's coming up. I want to say that very soon in San Diego, if any San Diego people are listening. When um, is that? What's the date? Or is that that date will be April 7th. For okay. The, for the uh, film outs, it is the Super Sci-Fi Saturday at Birch North Park Theater, and it's going to be from noon to midnight, 12 hours of awesomeness. Um, that does sound pretty awesome. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I, I have a my the trailer I made for it's on YouTube, so you should check that out, too. You should go to my, my websites, of course, are monsterislandresort.org and hifilmfest.com. The next film night I'm planning is a film called FDR American Badass about <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's a very farcical really really ridiculous movie made in the vein of the 60s Batman TV series okay. with Adam West that that kind of silly <laughs> it's about FDR fighting werewolf Hitler werewolf Hirohito and <laughs> and uh werewolf Mussolini and it's really hilarious. Now, my only my only complaint about that is they should have done Werewolf Hitler 
Frankenstein Mussolini yeah. and Vampire well, Hero here. Well, the way... <laughs> The whole thing is, he, he really, really has a personal grudge against them against, in this movie, because in this movie, werewolves give you polio, and that's how FDR got polio, because he was bitten by a werewolf, and the werewolf gave him polio. Oh, that's pretty So funny. it's basically FDR versus werewolves. Uh, it, it's, it's really absurd. It's really funny. Um, and it really is funny. Barry Bostwick from, from uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show plays FDR and he's just absolutely perfect. And also I want to mention uh my friend Jesse Merlin who uh, was you know spectacular as Dr. Hill in Reanimator the musical plays Werewolf Hitler in this movie. So uh, I'm planning on doing the San Diego premiere of that hopefully in April. Uh if it is in April it'll be April 20th, which is uh that one is Hitler's birthday. Yeah. Okay. I either wanted it to be on Hitler's birthday or the, or the, uh, the one, the, the anniversary of D-Day. So it's either going to be, um, April 20th or June. I forgot. Oh my God, my history is slipping out too. The anniversary of D-Day, which is in June. Mm-hmm. So it's either going to be in April or June. Uh, so that's in the works now. And, and also I'm planning more film nights to come to San Diego at a, at a smaller venue that serves alcohol, and that's all I'm going to say about that now. Nice. Well, uh, I, keep us posted, yeah? I will, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, just listen to Monster Island Resort and keep listening to this one. Thank you so much for being our inaugural interview, Miguel. This has been awesome. No problem. It was um, a lot of fun. 